2: I saw the mansion, I saw, you know, Porsches and Lamborghinis and all these cars, and I said, I want to play here. I want to play with this band. <laughs> we almost got in a fist fight with them, too, because somebody from Black Sabbath stole a bag of pots oh, nice. from us around Little roadie and punched him in the face. And our a uh, Rusty Day, he carried guns and knives and everything, so it wasn't a good idea to get in a scuff with him, you know? I always say that seven minutes have changed my life.
0: Hello and welcome to episode 43 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now this week's guest is an absolute legend. Carmine Peace is known as one of the true innovators of the heavy rock scene. In fact, John Bonham learned from him, as did many other of the world's greatest drummers. Now a warning straight away, if you've not already noticed, this is a long episode. I usually try and keep the shows to about half an hour, 40 minutes max. A couple of exceptions, obviously. But I spoke to Carmine for over an hour. In fact, he he showed me around his garage as well. His lovely Jaguar XF casually parked next door to his Maserati. Yes, indeed. It was only the fact that he realised he had another interview lined up that we had to cut the chat short. And he ended the interview telling me that we had to do it again and his PR guy messaged to say, Carmine... Really enjoyed it. But I'll tell you what, he didn't enjoy it half as much as I did. Now, the reason I started this podcast series, speaking to these world-famous rock stars, was to hear their incredible stories behind the big names, the big groups, the big albums, the big songs, and get it directly from the rock stars themselves. And Carmine was full of them. The interview was packed full of big names and crazy stories, including the likes of Rod Stewart, Led Zeppelin... Ozzy and Sharon Osborne, Jeff Beck, Motley Cruz, Tommy Lee, and many more. It really is a great interview. Now, just quickly before we get into it though, I just want to say thank you for the response to last week's episode, the interview with Dave Mason, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer himself. Now, it became one of the most listened to first weeks of any episode so far on the series. It's incredible. I've had some great feedback from it too, so thanks to everyone that was in touch on email and on social media as well. Speaking of which, if you haven't already, get on the Vintage Rock Pod Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, that sort of thing. Give them a like, a follow, a subscribe, that would be lovely. Right, let's get into this then. Here's my interview with the wonderful Carmina Peace. I'm delighted to welcome the creator of heavy rock drumming as we know it, blazing the trail that John Bonham, Ian Pace, and others have followed since. He's a key member in the bands Vanilla Fudge and Cactus, as well as with Rod Stewart and Jeff Beck in BBA, and his role of honour includes Ozzy Osbourne, Michael Schenker, Pink Floyd, King Cobra, Jan Ackerman from Focus, Ted Nugent, Pat Travers, Sly Stone, Paul Stanley, and a whole host of other people I've probably not mentioned too. He's still touring and releasing new music today. Vanilla Fudge and Cactus have live dates this month, the next, and next, Andy has a new album out with APP, the Piece Podermo Project 2. There's an awful lot to dive into. I'm delighted to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod the one and only Carmine Apeace. Hello, Carmine.
2: Hello, how are you?
0: I'm good, I'm good. It's great to speak to you. Absolutely lovely to speak to you.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, I've been a long time since I've been in England, So you know, I always loved being with. We actually have a live BBA record supposedly coming out shortly. I don't know exactly when. Uh, uh, live 1974 at the London Rainbow and it has uh, seven new songs and three of the old songs on it. Wow. And it sounds really good. I mixed it with Jeff Beck's uh, engineer a few couple of years ago. Uh, his manager is putting together a deal. I don't know what's taking him so long. Well, uh, Maybe they're waiting till <laughs> next year when it was kind of the 50th anniversary of when we got together you know, originally. Yeah. You know, so I don't know, maybe they're waiting for that but you know, I figure they're English still. They're slower than we are.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Taking our time, having a cup of tea. Exactly. That's what we're doing.
2: (laughs) They're probably having a cup of tea. But I love England. I love. I love Jeff, especially when I was there with Rod. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Four nights at Wembley and six nights (laughs) at the Olympia and just amazing stuff.
0: Absolutely, it's such a phenomenal career you've had so far, Carmine. and it's just truly.
2: I've been blessed. Okay, absolutely
0: so. absolutely i wish i could speak to you for hours about this but we're gonna to have to condense some of it so we'll, we'll pick out some of the big bits and yeah. let's start at the beginning then obviously vintage rock pod we like to hear about all the big names and the big things and let's start with with vanilla fudge i mean it's an historic name in in rock and you guys uh, weren't originally called vanilla fudge though were you i mean i'm whose name yeah, pops we were the up Pigeons. that's it i'm name pops up a lot on these interviews and he wasn't a big fan of that name was he your first name
2: Well, we didn't care. It's the Atlantic Records said, that name sucked. You have to change your name. (laughs) So we had this woman that was uh, hanging out with us and she said, you know, you guys are like white soul, like Vanilla Fudge. I said, oh, that's a good name, Vanilla Fudge. Because at the time there was strawberry alarm clock and, you know, stupid (laughs) names like that, you know. And we said, oh, why not Vanilla Fudge? At least it means something. Well, where's the strawberry alarm clock? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I don't know, I don't know anyone that has an alarm clock with the strawberries, are you? <laughs> we went with that, and Atlantic liked it, and that was it, you know? So when it came out, it was it was weird getting used to it first because when we had an area that we were big, in, like in Newport, Rhode Island, they would say, like, "Tonight, vanilla fudge, formerly the pigeons. <laughs> Cause we had a following as the pigeons, you know? Really funny
0: <laughs> incredible stuff now you guys created a sound a heavy sound a slower sound than what was around at the time and famously um richie blackmore said that deep purple were wanting to be vanilla fudge uh, clones in back in the early days of the band i mean yeah it's
2: amazing
0: what was it about that sound and that, that you guys loved so much then and what was the process that you went through when you're in recording some of these songs
2: well it, it all it really started from the rascals you know the rascals were, were a new york band that got really famous and and they did some duo over songs like Midnight Hour and Mustang Sally" and stuff like that and then uh, there's a fad that was going around in Long Island with the Leslie West was in a group called the the Vagrants and Billy Joel was in a group called the Hassles you know, and we used to all do rearrangements that was the fad in long Island and the vagrants were the biggest. they used to draw on a weekend two thousand people to my manager's club you know mm-hmm. and that's what the, when the Pigeons asked me to join them. That's what they wanted to do. This new fad music. All the arrangements were original, Mm -hmm. but the songs were famous songs and we would redo all the songs and like rearrange them totally. Yeah. And what our concept was to match the music and the emotion of the lyrics together. Right? So the, like you keep me hanging on, I listen to us. Set me free, why don't you <laughs> be? It was like a happy song, but really not happy lyrics. And uh, so we married the, the emotional music to the emotional lyric with emotional vocals, and that's what happened there. You know, it was great, and it became our hit. And we noticed every time we played that song, people would stop trying to dance songs, which you couldn't do anyway, <laughs> but they stopped trying, and they would all come to the front of the stage and watch the, this crazy animated band, you know? And, you know, we were also, you know, like, all arms And yep. if you look at the Ed Sullivan show, you know what I'm talking about. It's just a wild, it was a wild band. In those days, bands just used to stand there, especially all the English bands. You know, the Herm- Hermits, Hermits, and Jerry and the Pacemakers, <laughs> and the Beatles, and, and the Stones. And, you know, nobody really was animated and wild, except for maybe the Who. We were, like, musically wild, and we were physically wild. So between that and the fact that we had four voices yeah. and we picked the, the correct songs, and we married the songs to the music, like people get ready. we married it to like a gospel kind of vibe because that's what it was. Eleanor Rigby, you know, it was, I mean, the Beatles did it amazing with the quartet, but we took it and put it into an eerie setting, almost like a, an eerie soundtrack to the mm, lyrics, yeah. you know, same season of the witch. And uh, she's not there. We slowed it down, made it yeah. emotional, you warm. Know, and that's what we did. So uh, Would You Keep Me Hanging On? We went in, recorded, and one take mono, everything once. I always say that seven minutes have changed my life.
0: Did you ever hear from, you mentioned Eleanor Rigby, our time of the season, did you ever hear from people in the bands, the Beatles, the Zombies, about what they thought of your versions of these songs?
2: Well, I I, I heard from um, uh, Holland, Doge Holland, that road you keep me hanging on. And they said, out of all the covers, Vanilla Fudge is by far way above. They loved it. They said, it's the best cover we've ever had. And uh, when I was at Rod, Rod said to me, Mom, I love the way you guys did that so much. I wish I would have done it. <laughs> and I said to him, well, let's do it. I'm in the band. It's a good excuse. So we did it. Mm-hmm. And he sang it great. And we did a very similar arrangement of Vanilla Fudge, except the middle section where Tom got brought an orchestra. And that was awesome. And Rod sang it, and I sang the same kind of doo 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 in the background parts that I did with Vanilla Fudge <laughs> and played pretty much the same drum part.
0: Fantastic. But it was song.
2: awesome. But, you know, and that just um, started our career. And, and, and the sound of that song, I, get, I don't know, maybe because it was mono, it sounded heavy. Mm, you know, yeah. the bass drum was really big and fat. Yep. It sounded like Led Zeppelin's bass drum you know, and the, the drum sound was like that kind of sound, you know, it was very R&B, but big and fat. And, and with Tim right there with me, it made it really heavy, you know, versus the other bands, even the Rascals. I mean, the Rascals never had a bass player. So Dino, even though he played a 24-inch bass drum, which at the time was big, then I started playing 26 bass drums and all the toms and everything big because everything was getting so loud All the amps, your Marshall amps and and big bass amps and stuff, you couldn't even hear the drums unless you they got bigger. So I got a bigger bass drum to be heard. And then when I got a Ludwig endorsement, I got everything big. So that sort of helped create this whole heavy rock drumming thing that I, I got into. I, uh, listen, I used to put a bass drum mic inside my bass drum <laughs> and run it into Tim's bass amp.
0: Now, you mentioned Led Zeppelin quickly there. I mean, when they came to the, to the U.S., they, they supported you. They opened for you, didn't they? Yes, I mean, how did. was that hanging with, with those guys?
2: Well, it was good. We knew Jimmy, and the other three guys were brand new. Nobody knew who they were. Matter of fact, the very first gig, we didn't even need them. The promoter didn't want them on gig. The pay was $1,500, and the promoter said, we don't need you. We're sold out already. We don't need you. But uh, our agent was their agent, and he worked out a deal where Vanilla Fudge paid them half from our fee, and the promoter paid half. Yep. But when they got on that show, people were yelling, bring on the fudge, and, you know, like, <laughs> when they were on stage, you know. That changed quickly. <laughs> they were an awesome band, but we, we recognized the talent that they were. We knew they were going to be big, but we didn't know they were going to be that big. It's hard to understand now because John Bonham and Led Zeppelin was so big, you know, like the Beatles, you know, that they were totally yeah. unknown. When John Bonham came on the tour, you know, he told me he was a, a a fan of mine. He said, he liked my style and all that. And he had that triplet on Good Times, Bad Times. And I love that. I said, I love that triplet. That's awesome, man. Where did you get that? And he said, I got it from you. I said, I don't do that. (laughs) And he worked it out on my, I think it was the third Vanilla Fudge record where I did that just for maybe two bars, you know? Because in those days, we just used to go in and play. We didn't plan everything like they do today yeah yeah you know, we just did what we did you know this is how we rehearsed it when i went in and recorded it i played it similar to when i rehearsed it, but it wasn't exactly the same it was never the same if i had to do videos back then for vanilla fudge songs forget about it i wouldn't even be able to play what i played <laughs> because i don't know what i played. you know and that's the way it was so so he pointed it out and i said I, I didn't even know i did that and he just did it repetitively and came up with that triplet. And then I, didn't know, I didn't recognize it. And and then we became friends. And then he loved my big drum set. And he said, do you think you can help me out and get a, a Ludwig endorsement and get a drum set like yours? I said, I don't know. i me call him. So I called him. And I told him, I think this band is going to be big. The understatement of what, five, six thickheads? You know? <laughs> And, uh, and on, on my word, and we sent him the record, they, they gave him a, a kit just like Murray: a double bass drum and big toms and big bass drums and big snare drum, which he used for the rest of his career, basically. In the second tour, there were two bass drums. We both had the same exact kit. I had the gong, he had the gong. <laughs> and I, I often wonder what the audience thought when, we, we did alternate billing with some nights they opened up some nights we opened up and the drum set would be on the stage. They take it off. Then they bring the same exact drum set again <laughs> out for whoever was playing next. And I often thought what the audience saw, why, why are they doing that? They just took that drum set off. The, yeah. Nobody had the names on the drums. You know, so it was pretty funny, but on, on that tour, I played double bass drum at the end of that tour, Robert and Jimmy said, you know, you're too busy. Take away that one bass drum. He said, we liked you better on one bass drum. When that happened, the Led Zeppelin drum kit was gone
0: phenomenal love hearing these stories a lot, a lot
2: of good history though.
0: yeah absolutely absolutely i spoke to loads of drummers over, over the, the series and um i love hearing from the drummers union likes of simon kirk and bev bevan who are obviously good friends with with uh, bonzo as well and it's just nice to hear these kind of things that go on in the background
2: was it, uh chris welch Well, chris welch the writer the melody maker he wrote a book called thunder of drums and in the book it talks about when bonzo yeah, yeah. came to america and then and played with us so I went back and he was just all raving about hanging out with me and all that you know because you know they weren't big yet you know and him and cozy pal were talking and hanging out together because they from from Birmingham you know when I read that I, I you know I was like you know I don't know how to react you know, because you know we, it came out when Zeppelin was huge <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I'm, there, I'm looking at it and, and seeing how Bonzo was reacting. Because you know, I, I'm I'm always the type of guy when an opening act, I make friends with him. You know, I like I like you guys. When I was at Ozzy, the opening act was Molly Crew. I hung out with Tommy Lee and all the guys, got to know them. They're from LA. Hung out with Tommy, you know, and 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 he did a bit thing where he spun the stick, grabbed the cymbal, like I do. And I said, "Where'd you get that?" He said, "From John Bonham. I said, well, indirectly, you got it from me, because it's said, no, oh, dude, I got it from Bonzo. So after the tour, I took, I invited him to my house and I showed him Two Edge Sullivan videos that were around before Led Zeppelin with me doing that kind of stuff and, and Shotgun doing, like, the end of Rock and Roll and Shotgun, you know, and he was, like, blown away. I said, dude, I can't believe you did this first. I said, I told him. <laughs> but you know, but I mean, me and John Bonham we were good friends, so we, I love the guy. Uh, we had fun on the road. One time he, and and Robert and Jimmy do the song uh, the, the bow and the vocal oh, 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 yeah, all that stuff. John Paul Jones and Bonzer will come off the stage. And one time Bonzer comes up and says, Hey, why don't you and Tim go up instead of me and me and John Paul? I said, Okay. So we went up and we knew the song. When you're on tour with everybody, I tend yeah. to know the arrangements. So we are playing. So Robert singing, he looks over, sees me and Tim, goes over the page and elbows him and goes, Oi Okay, we just continued the song. And then when we went on, they all came up and jammed shotgun with us.
0: Oh, fantastic.
2: That was a good goes good old days when it was fun, you know.
0: Oh, man. Just love hearing all these stories. It's just brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Um, someone else I want to hear about as well, Jeff Beck. I mean, you worked with, with Tim and Beck and yourself, BBA. Yeah. yeah. Shot Live Project initially, but talk to me about, about Jeff. I mean, what was he like to write with and and, and perform well, Jeff, with? Jeff,
2: Jeff was a very, uh, I don't know, he wasn't very outgoing a lo- lo- lot of people, you know, but a little introverted, but a really nice guy. I love Jeff. We both into cars. We all like the cars, me, him, and Tim, and motorcycles. And Tim was motorcycle. Me and Jeff were cars. And uh, you know, he was a great player. He loved me and Tim. when when the album came out, he had it mixed with Don Nixon. And I said, "Man, why, why is the guitar so low? I want to hear the guitar. I want to hear you and Tim. You know." But uh, you know, we have a friendship that goes. You know, way back to 1968 when we met him, he was. I uh, had the same attorney as Vanilla Fudge, and we did a Coke commercial. And a singer, I'm uh, singer, a guitar player, got sick. So Jeff was in town, and Jeff played on the Coke commercial with us. He was just coming up. You know, it was Jeff Beck Group, and Truth album was just coming out. Yep. and you know he wasn't that famous yet. And other than the the Yardbirds, you know, and. It was great when he played while On, I think it was awesome. So the rest of the Fudge guys, were going to go, Alex, oh, was awesome. And then we found out on '69 from John Bonham that Jeff wanted to play with me and Tim. You know, because we did a gig in Long Island. It was, it was a Jeff Beck group. who uh, was a weird bill. Edwin Hogan's singer, you know, Happy Day. Not a Christian kind of song. Okay. And then 10 years after, Jeff Beck group of Vanilla Fudge. You know, and then when Jeff Beck group was on, Zeppelin went up and jammed with him right before we went on. And they were like, Come on, how do you follow that? You know, and then that's when we were on tour with them, and they were bigger. And the album was gold. You know, and that night, Jeff Beck, uh, John Bonham said to me, "He said, you know, Jeff wants to play with you and Tim. Here's Jeff's number." <laughs> so that's what started it. You know. I mean, Jeff didn't even come up to us and say it was John Bottom, you know, because Jeff was always so shy, you know. It's gotten better now, you know, but he's, uh, he's good. And, you know, we went to a lot. I, I originally played on Blow by Blow. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't work out. I remember I used to listen to Ma Vishnu orchestra and Billy Cobb mountains in the car with me and Jeff driving, and Tim was in the other car with the tour manager, and you know, and we we both loved that stuff. And you know, and then when Blow by Blow was uh, rehearsing for that, we didn't know if there was going to be a Becca piece album because Tim was yeah. Tim basically quit. But I but I loved Jeff, and I I hung out with him in England for three months. I I played with uh, also after I rehearsed with Jeff, I would play with Ray Gomez and Rick Wretch and Traffic. Yes, and yeah. uh, and uh, eventually I brought Rick over to the uh, U.S. and. We, with the KGB bands, Mike Bullfield, you know? But uh, yeah, so I was rehearsing with Jeff and we were doing Blow by Blow and in the studio with George Martin, I cut like six tracks and we couldn't work a deal out yeah. with, with Epic and 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 uh, Just manager and all that. So I ended up not being on the record and I was like bummed out because mm-hmm. I really loved that stuff, yeah. you know? And then the record, I went back to LA and I actually got a record deal myself doing the same stuff. I got Mats Middleton on keyboard, and there White from Earth the Fire, and Jeff Haslip on, Jimmy Haslip on bass, and Dick Wagner on, on guitar, and it was instrumental, half instrumental, and half vocal, it was just like blow by blow. But CBS wouldn't release it, so they said, I'm not known for that. And then blow by blow comes out and skyrockets yeah. to the charts. I was like, you know, I said, I was on that record, you know? <laughs> but oh, hey it, life goes on you know it I mean, does indeed it just keep going you know and so and then I, I i i went to the i did the kgb thing and then that didn't work out and then i joined rod indeed so, i mean
0: you, you mentioned joining rod there i mean how did that all come about because you was with him for was it four studio albums
2: um actually it was a uh, by accident um oh, when I, was in, when I was playing with Jeff and uh, doing rehearsing of Blow by Blow, I did a couple of gigs. One of them was with uh, John Lord and Tony Ashton, the last of the big bands. And uh, on that gig was Phil Chen. And on that gig was Jim Cregan. Oh, yeah. And then I worked with Phil Chen on Blow by Blow. So one day I'm walking in L.A. after all that, and uh, I ran into my friend Sandy Gennaro drummer. I said, hey, how are you doing? He said, good. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I just auditioned from Rod. I didn't make it. You should call him. I said, really? Who'd you call? So he showed me a guy's name, Pete Buckland. I said, oh, Pete, we did 30, 35 gigs with faces and captives. We used to wreck hotel rooms and abuse <laughs> women and did everything, <laughs> wreck cars and did everything together. And Pete was at the helm of it all. So I said, I'll oh, give you the number. So I called Pete, and I said, hey, Pete, it's Carmine at Peace. What's the deal? You, Rod's looking for a drummer. You don't call me? And he says, Ah, oh, you're always busy. I said, well, I'm not busy now. I'd love to play with Rod. Well, like- I me mean, call Rod. He's in England. So we called Rod. And Rod's, Rod told him, have Carmine go to my house. The band is there. They're, they're looking for a drummer. Have him, me, check it out. So it was almost like. I've come, I check the band out, see if he likes it. I said, whoa, that's pretty, that's a switch. And I said, I've known Rod now, you know, this was I've known Rod since 68, and this is like uh, almost 10 years later, you know? And we did a lot of gigs together with Cactus and Face as well. Yeah. So I went to the house, I figured, well, I'm going to Rod Stewart, so I'm going to bring a good car I had a Pantera at the time, which is now in England. A guy bought it in England, and he's, redoing this Pantera, totally restoring it for car shows. Nice. And since I had that car for 40 years, he's gonna call it the Carmine La Peace Pantera. <laughs> and I'm gonna tell him about all the people that rode in it, like Ozzy <laughs> and Rod, Rod Stewart and Prince and all these different oh, people, Jeff wow. Beck, you know? Anyway, so I, I drove the Pantera to Rod's house. I pull up to these gigantic gates. I said, whoa, I didn't know Rod was this <laughs> successful, you know? And I pull in <laughs> and then I go in and I see Phil Chen, I go, hey, I didn't know you were in the band. And I, I meet Jim Cregan, he was in the band, I met him in England. And so, so we had a play, it sounded good. And, and also, yeah, I had to have this in my head as soon as I went in there. I saw the mansion, I saw you know Porsches and Lamborghinis and all these cars, and I said, I wanna play here, I wanna play with this band, you know? And, and we went and had a play, and it was, it was good, kick-ass. Like cactus kind of rock and roll, you yeah. know. So two days later, Rod comes back and I go back up there, and we have a play with Rod. And then Rod just come over and said, Look, gig's yours if you want it. I said, play like you did in cactus. I'll give you a solo every night. I know you have fans, and I'll I know when I come back the fans will be rocking after your solo, and I'll use that to go freshen up again, you know. I said, fine. Yeah, that, that's it.
0: Phenomenal stuff. And and what I like about this is yeah. the fact that you weren't just a drummer. I mean, you you've never been just a drummer. You've you your vocals in there as well. But you you helped to to write yeah. songs as well, didn't you? And we're talking some of Rod Stewart's yes. biggest ever songs.
2: I mean, by chance, I I co-wrote the thing. I'm sexy. It was like, you know, Rod was a really fair good dude. I love Rod. I still I just saw him a month ago down here, and, uh in Florida. And you know, I went to his party, 70th birthday party, and. I, mean, I love Rod. He's a good guy. Yeah, he wrote the intro to my book, Stick It, yep. My Life Respects from Jerocco Lowe, you can get on music sales. I mean. <laughs> uh, but, you know, he's always been good to me. And, you know, I tried to do the same with him. You know, when I worked with him, I did background vocals, I arranged background vocals and stuff. And then he's one day he came up to everybody and said, I want a song like Missing You. So whoever will give me a song like Missing You, you know, you got it. I said, all right, so I went home, I have a keyboard, and I was playing these changes and drum machine. Then I went to my buddy Dwayne Hitching's house who had a, an eight-track studio, TX studio with drum machines and all so we made it sound he made it sound good, and then he added a little bit for the bridge, you know. So we gave it to Rod and we won. You know, we got it. And we went in the studio. And the great thing about sexy is when we went in the studio and cut it, we had three guitars, bass, drums, uh, and Dwayne on keyboard, and Rod vocals. It was pretty rock-heavy, you know? Yep. It wasn't disco-y. You know, even though I had that four in the bass drum, you know, that was the idea. That's you know, less- sort of missing it, you know? And, uh, and then Tom Dowd grabbed a hold of it. We put Tom Scott on it, put David Foster on it, Put an orchestra on it, put Linda Lewis, Jim Cregans and now his ex wife, singing the high part, two octaves up and all kinds of stuff, kunga players and so all of a sudden we're on 24 tracks instead of one. So the sound shrunk. You know, so when it was done, it sounded like the way it sounded. And we were all like, Wow, it sounds a bit wimpy, you know. But Tom said, Trust me came out, went to number one in 10 countries. So <laughs> I guess he was right.
0: Yeah. Well, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, so what was it like um, working with, yeah. with with Rod then? I mean, obviously on the road, the, the, the stories are pretty famous and legendary, but great. what was it like being in the studio, writing songs and stuff with him?
2: Well, you know, the band always came up with music most of the time. and uh, and, and Rod wrote the lyrics and the melodies all the time. And sometimes he had songs that he wrote, like, You're in My Heart. And, yeah. and uh, Rod always did the melody and the lyrics. And, and he always had great lyrics and great, you know, every song he liked were like sayings. You think I'm sexy. You're in my heart. Hot legs. Uh, passion. You know, every picture tells a story. I mean, I mean they're, they're sayings that, everyday sayings that people. That's what made him so great. You know, and relatable by the audience because everything he sung about, people have said. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: And, and talk to me about him as a frontman as well, as as a singer, as oh, a he was the as best a stage presence.
2: He was the best frontman singer in those days, period. There was nobody could match him. Even my mother loved him. And she <laughs> was sixty years old, you know way he used to run all over the stage with the scarves and, you know, sing to the audience. And it was like all that, you know, was, oh, I learned that. a lot from Rod, actually. And songwriting and, and stage presence a bit, learning how to work an audience from them. He was, was awesome. And it was still I great. Yeah, I, mean, I always yeah, slowed definitely. down. I mean, come on, he's seven, eight years old. <laughs> I, I feel my speed on the drum slowing down and my... Pizazz, all that stuff, so, you know, I had two shoulder surgeries, I mean, you know, but, you know, it's just, uh, you created something when we were young, him and myself, and it's carried to our career.
0: Incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, another big name I'd like to just touch on briefly is, uh, is Osley Osbourne. I mean, you talked was with him, during his... <laughs> yes, indeed. You told with them on the uh, "The Bark at the Moon" album tour, didn't you? I mean, yeah. you and Ozzy got on well, but same couldn't be said for for Sharon, could it? Yeah, no.
2: I got along great with with Ozzy and and Sharon was. I don't, I don't get it. I mean, they called me, I didn't call mm-hmm. them. I, I agreed to play, do the tour and everything. I had a manager at the time, you know. I was i was pretty big at the time you know my yeah, yeah. Uh, i just come out of rod and all those hits playing in front of you know a people in in la and i'm in all the magazines i'm writing uh articles for for uh circus every issue you know i was you know big i had a big name going there. i was a, yeah. a sonic spose- spokesperson you know getting paid for that I was uh Mattel Drums uh, was, Mattel, Sassana so Drums was backing me. I had uh, a solo album out on Rod's label. You know, there's a lot of things going on. And and they called me and they said they they didn't like what Tommy Aldridge did on the record. They wanted me to come in and take over. You know, I said, you want me to recut the record? And they said, no, we want you to go in, in the studio with Ozzy and Tony Bongiovi and help make the record sound better. You know, drum wise and all that. So, can you come to London and play with the band? Sure. So, I went to London. I was in Cannes, France, doing a convention for, for sonic drums. You know, <clears throat> yeah, I was on the beach. I was having a good time, you know. <laughs> and my wife at the time was with me. And so, I went to London. My, my ex wife, you now, she went home to LA. And then uh, I was in there. I played with the band. It was Jakey Lee. I knew Jake from LA. Bob Daisley, I knew him from Rainbow. And Don Airey, I didn't know, and I knew Ozzy from Black Sabbath. I mean, when Black Sabbath did their first tour, we toured with them with Cactus. You know, and we almost got in a fist fight with them too because somebody from Black Sabbath stole a bag of pots from us. From our little roadie and punched him in the face. You know, we were like this, like this, with Ozzy and, and, and other guys with us. And I've seen Rusty Day; he carried guns and knives and everything, so it wasn't a good, good idea to get in a, a scuff with him. You know. <laughs> but, and me a lot and Ozzy laughed about that but we were on tour you know together but anyway so I went to there I play with him and we agreed to do it so Sharon talked to my manager worked out a deal and my deal was I would have my own merch mm-hmm. just a t-shirt and I was able to do master classes in America which I was doing for charities and I would play like we'd pull into a city get a set I'd get a sound check I get picked up by a store. I go to a music store, and I do a master class for 50 students, or 30 students rather. And, you know, take an hour, hour, 15 minutes. I would just show them grooves and bring people up and sell my drum book, sign autographs, and leave. And I get back to the venue, you totally like another hour before we go on. You know, I would have ate dinner by then. And it was good, so I was doing... A lot of those and they were sold out and I was giving money to UNICEF charity yep. and I was making big money with that and and I was making whatever I made with Ozzy and with the DMs and everything and Sharon didn't like that and I was I had my own publicist too and I was getting articles in every <laughs> city we went to because I was giving money to the charities. You know, that was the whole idea. My manager was a he used to work with KISS on the PR and... So he knew how to get a lot of PR, and I was getting a lot of PR. And she just didn't like it. She was pushing Jakey e. Lee, and I was getting more press than Jakey e. Lee. You know? So one time uh, in Cincinnati, I had a full-page article in the, in the big newspaper, and it talked about everything you know I was doing, playing with Ozzy and playing with this and that and this. And, uh, and then they said, what's the biggest effect on the show? And I said, well, it's, I think it's the drum solo. Because I'm up on a 15-foot riser and stairs coming down. The stairs open up. The drums come down on a track to the front of the stage. I finish the solo there. Explosions go up there on the balcony. And then I go back up. I said, but I didn't think of this, of this whole thing. It was Ozzy and Sharon's idea. Mm-hmm. It's their scheme, you know, their plan for the tour, not me. Whoever was playing drums will get this. So I come in that day after the mass class, and that article was all over the backstage, 30, 40 copies of it, just plastic all it just to bust my balls, you know? <laughs> I said, okay. And then my roadie car con- had my own tech. comes up and says, hey, CA, he goes, all your T-shirts, the head was cut off of all your T-shirts. I said, come on, you what? kidding me? So I run up to uh, Robert, the tour manager, who's the Def Leppard's uh, drummer's brother, you know? Mm-hmm. I said, Robert, what's going on? He goes, go talk to Sharon. And and then it was like, but well, you don't have time. We have to hit the stage in, in like 20 minutes. And I said, okay. So I was like, funeral, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I get up stage, playing okay. the show. My solo con, I usually, just before the, the stairs start moving, the thing goes down, my roadie taps me on the butt so I'm not on the bass drum because it jerks and it screws up the bass drum. So I'll be on the snare drum. So he taps me on the butt. I'm 15 feet up. He's on a little ledge behind me, tapping me. I'm playing on the snare drum, waiting for the thing to move. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. So I just figured, it's it's not going to work tonight. I did my solo from there. I got the same reaction I always get, except when the pyro went off, I was there. I shouldn't have been there. I felt the hairs on my arm sizzle, you know? So I got off the stage, and we got off the stage. Ozzy and Sharon were getting in the bus with their kids. And me and the rest of the band were getting our bus. So I I get to Bob Daisy. I said, Bob, do you think Sharon would sabotage her own show to make me look bad because of that stupid article? He says, definitely, (laughs) without a doubt. So that's the only time that it didn't work. And then after that, she kept telling me that I'm tired after my master class. And I explained to her, there's no way I'm tired. And Ozzy would come up to me and say, before it's, was, oh, bloody not goodbye. And it's before we're walking <laughs> on stage. Molly Cruz opened it up. They're killing it. I said, come on, dude, let's kill it. You know? So then I saw Tommy Aldridge hanging around in, in, in Dallas and uh, the weekend in Houston, played the last gig in Houston. The band was on fire. And Robert comes up to me and says, again, and says, Hey, uh, Sharon wants to talk to him, going I'll there. And she basically fired me. She said, Your name is too big. You need your own band. And, uh, you know, so Tommy Aldridge is taking over on Monday. I said, Sharon, I got a contract with you. She goes, Well, we'll see you in court. And uh, I said, I said, What about my gentleman? She goes, Well, I asked you, really to stay. I said, He ain't going to stay with you. She's firing me. You know? She goes, You're right. He's not staying. So. I, I told him he can drive the drums home. I said, no, I don't want to drive the drums home. You flew the drums out. I want the drums flown back, to L.A. along with my lowly flow. I never did that. It was part of the lawsuit. <clears throat>
0: honestly, honestly, that's incredible. Yeah, <sighs> um, yeah, but,
2: so... And, you know, I have not talked to her since.
0: <laughs> but things between you and Ozzy is still good, yeah?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, one time we uh, Zach was doing his handprint on the Rock Walk of Fame in uh, L.A., and uh, I was talking to Ozzy. I was talking to Ozzy, he was going, "Oh, how are you kids? And how's everything?" I go, "How are you?" Ozzy, i was talking to you. You know, he gave me a hug, and I gave him a hug, and we we're talking. And all of a sudden, the security guy comes over. Ozzy Sharon wants you. <laughs> she probably saw I'm talking to me. Yeah. You know? And then my brother played with Sabbath and when Ozzy was there. Yeah. And Sharon says to my brother, you're a lot, yeah. you're a lot, lot nicer than than uh, your brother. And I mean, I never did anything to her. Matter of fact, the first time I, I saw Ozzy and her, uh, we were on the bus. and I see Ozzy and Sharon and, and we're in England, in a rest area. And Ozzy just winged off and hit her in the face, kind of thing. I started getting up, going, Hey, dude. You know, started going out of the bus to like, Bob, what are you doing? You don't hit a woman like that. Um, and Bob did just say, stay out of it. And did. Next thing I know, she's swinging right back at him, hitting him worse than he hit her. I said, Oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> Jeez. So, it was a little strange. Very. It was a strange time, you know. The band was great, you know, and uh, no, Ozzy couldn't remember the lyrics. You know, he used to paste them one in the back of Bob, Dave, of Bob basically. <laughs> yeah. But, but I loved Ozzy. He was a good man.
0: Indeed, indeed. And then um, talking about big names, I mean, um, something I want to talk about is a series, or well, the album that you did with some of the biggest guitar players on the planet. Yeah, um, the
2: Guitar Zeus. Awesome. Uh,
0: guitar Zeus, yeah, yeah. I mean, it shows, to start with, the esteem with which you're held in the industry, the fact that you've got such incredible names because we're talking Slash and Brian May and Richie Sambora, yeah. Neil Sean, Ingvays on there. I mean, it's just incredible. I mean, where did, where did the I, idea I, for I this project it, first begin for you?
2: Well, well, the way I put it was like I got every big name guitar player except Paige, uh, not, yeah, Paige uh, Beck, and Clapton. I got everybody else, <laughs> just about. That's because Joe Bonamassa wasn't big yet, so I, I probably would have got him. Sorry. Steve I I would have got, but he said uh, he'll do the next one. Uh, it just, uh, you know, it's just kind of like that Rod Stewart, the way that happened, coincidence. You know, I, I was playing with Bob Daisley, uh, Jeff Watson, and Joel and Turner. We had a group Joel. called Mother's Honor. Yeah. We were thinking about calling the group Zeus. You know, it, it didn't do anything anywhere in the world, really, except Japan. I mean, well, in Japan in the 90s. Because grunge was king, and we were like dinosaurs, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, we're we're at Jeff's house. Jeff just got a solo album out on on Mike Varney's label. He just came out of uh, Night Ranger. I've been looking for a a deal now for 10 years since my 82 Rod solo album when I was Rod. And uh, I I said, it's ridiculous. You just come out of Night Ranger. You got a guitar record deal, an instrumental guitar record deal. I said... What do I got to do? A guitar record to get another solo deal? <laughs> I said, you know, like, I'll get a whole, I'll get a record done. I did bring a bunch of my friends and I'll call it Guitar Guns. And I said, no, I'll call it Guitar Zeus because that Zeus was on my mind. I said, Guitar Zeus. And we all laughed, you know, it was all of us there. And I was hanging out laughing. And I went to bed that night. And I said, that's a freaking good idea. Yeah. You know, a drummer doing a guitar album. Can get it out, then I can do guitar magazines, drum magazines, and I could do rock magazines, you know, in the PR. So I just got to find somebody who can put this thing together. So what, it took about two years from then. You know, that was 92. It was, so in 94, I I met a, a manager who managed Doug Aldridge. <clears throat> and uh, before Doug was famous, mm-hmm. and one of the worldwide things he did was my guitar music. But he told me on his manager who got me a deal out of Japan, right? A big deal, like 140, 50, 150 grand, something like that. So I said, wow. But in the interim, I'd run into Brian May at a clinic at a, guitar, a house of guitars in Buffalo, Rochester. I said, if I did this album, would you play obviously? Sure. <laughs> I ran into Ted Nugent. He said he would do it. I ran into the King's X guys as they were hot at the time. I said, you know, uh, if I can get those guys, it'll bring on a lot of other people, and they all said they would do it. So finally, when I got the deal, I called them all, and and I had to find somebody to write songs with. And I knew I wanted to use Tony Franklin because I loved Tony with Blue Murder, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, Kelly Keeling was in Blue Murder, and we went to Japan in '94 to do uh, a tour after the second Blue Murder record came out. We were all out of Blue Murder. John Sykes was going there as Blue Murder. So we went to Japan as a super session and we played Blue Murder songs. And then I realized how talented Kelly was as a guitar player, singer. So I recruited him and I sat with him and I worked on songs. And then, uh, you know, we, we came up with the, the songs and I got Tony to play bass. And then I started calling people, sending tapes out. And I got Brian, Ted and the, and the King, uh, King's X guys first. And then Kelly was working with Ingway and Ingway said, oh, I want to do it. Yeah. So I flew to Florida, got him. And then when Ingway got on it, then I heard from Slash and Slash came in. And I heard from, I got Elliot Easton and I got this one <laughs> and that one. And, you know, so before you know it, I had this amazing amount of people. You know, Leslie West, Jennifer Patton, yeah. Steve Moss, you know, it was incredible. And I said, wow. And then the record did fantastic worldwide. I sold like 150,000 records worldwide, you know? Yep. I went to Europe. I did a massive European tour, uh, promotion tour on television. And, and it was on Koch label. I even got royalties, you know? And they gave me a big uh, deal. I got a deal in France. I got a publishing deal in France, publishing deal in Europe. Next thing I know, we're doing one, number two. <laughs> And I got everybody number two. Then I had the guitars used Korea, just <laughs> Korean guys. Guitars use Japan, yeah. just Korean, uh, Japanese guys. And they, I said, wow, I really created something here. Now in in November, the twenty fifth anniversary box set's coming out. Yep. And I got three new tracks. I got Kiss, uh, Tommy Thayer on it. I got me Tony and Kelly, mm-hmm. Tommy Thayer on it. I got uh, Derek Sheridian playing like guitar on the synth. <laughs> you know, and I got a new kid named uh, Christopher Brigiani who plays on group call, a group called, I'm managing called Cody. Yeah. He's just like Van Halen, it's like Eddie, you know. And then we got other songs that, uh, Bumblefoot and a few yeah. other guys that can come out. And I put one of the Japanese guys on. It's going to be 37 tracks. It's going to be some tracks without any any guitar. Some tracks just with the vocal and the track, you know, we like, Kelly and Tony. A new booklet with interviews with guitar players, uh, an autographed photo of me with my new look, blah, 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 (laughs) a medallion, a t shirt, you know, and it's a whole whole guitar zoo's boxing. I said, wow, I can't believe this is still going, you know. Phenomenal. All from that stupid idea.
0: Absolutely. And um, did you get to be in the studio yeah. with these guys at the same time? Because are well, you going to break my heart here and tell me that they all did it remotely?
2: A lot of them. A, a lot of them, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the ones I didn't with Brian, because Brian was in Europe. Uh, I, I was in with Ted. I was in with Ingvar. I was in with Slash. I was in with uh, Richard Sambora. I was in with Steve Moss. No, no, I'm sorry. Steve Moss did his in, in Atlanta or wherever he was. Uh, the most of them, I'd say three quarters, I was in the studio with him it was awesome
0: so speaking about that project it touches on your new project as well i mean app a piece padermo project a new album came out a couple of weeks ago energy overload it's just what we'd expect big ballsy and rocking i mean tell us about the album tell us about fernando as well that you're working with
2: yeah well fernando i never heard of before until tom dowd's daughter called me and said there's a guy that wants to work with you and he was working with my dad and uh you know are you interested? I just moved to Florida. I just set up a studio in my house. And I said, yeah, I'm interested. You know, I thought it'd be a good way to learn how to work the studio. I'm in the studio now. And so we talked and I sent him a piece of music that I had on my iPad that I wrote. He sent it back to me with the stems. I said, wow, this is great. I put the drums so we had a mix of this. was is great. Let's do another one. I sent him another one. Sent it back. It was great. Did another one. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. 18 tracks later, I said, let's get this some of this out. So I called Cleopatra, put the deal together. And and even some of the ways we did it, I sent him drum tracks. I said, write to the drum tracks. See what you come up with, right? Eh? And like uh, Flower Child, uh, the uh, Broken Speaker Boogie, and uh, Pure Ecstasy were done to drum tracks and, and Rock It to the Sun. And they came out yeah. fantastic. And the funny thing happened. You know, I have a show called in the Bangin' with my brother every Thursday night. We have all rock people on. We had Suzy Quattro on. You know. So the next oh, day, yeah. Susie was emailing me, and, and she asked me if I would play on the next album. I said, yeah, that would be great. I know it from the old days, after the beck through It oh, days. Well, so she said, send me something that you played on recently. So I sent her the song Flower Child from the album. She emailed me back. She goes, I love this song. Oh. I love this song. I want to write lyrics and melody to it. Do you mind? I said, "No, oh, feel free." So she emailed me yesterday and said, "Please send me the stems. I want to, I want to, you know, <laughs> write to the song. I want to write to your track." I said, "Great." So we sent her the stuff, and we'll see where it goes. But now um, I'm looking forward to playing on her record. I, I, I always loved her. I thought she was a, a rebel, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah. We've loved had her on the show here. She's she's and, a force of nature for sure, isn't she? Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and this album is like a progressive rock album. It's not like, like Blow by Blow. is more like a jazz rock album. This was like more rock, progressive rock jazz, a little touches of jazz. Uh, you know, playing, improvising, jam, band, progressive kind of rock. And you know, like Fernando would send me something in 6-8 and then I would play the up-tempo 4-4 four, four against it to make it really strange, but it sounds together, you know? And we never had arguments. It would always be like, oh, well, let's try this. Okay. Or, or try that. Sure, let's do that. That was great. And we got so much music still. And uh, we're just releasing now, uh, we just finished a video for Flower Child. So uh, that's going to be coming out in the next few weeks with more of Cleopatra. And, uh, and I love it. I mean, he's a good guy. And, and and with the name of Peace Podolo Project, it's app. So you got to get your app now. Get download your <laughs> app you know
0: <laughs> very cleverly done indeed now if, you, if anyone wants to see um, the first video as well that rocket to the sun that came out um, yes. a couple of months ago the video to that so people can check that out but as i said the album energy overload is out now so so get out there and buy it stream it whatever it is that people do yeah, these days
2: and you can get you can get anybody can get that uh, It costs a little more from england but you can get it on my website autographed and and uh, my book called, you know, yeah. a lot of different stuff on Absolutely.
0: Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, cool. Carmine. It's been lovely hearing all your stories and uh, hopefully get, uh, get you over in the UK at some point again.
2: Yeah, let's do it again.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Okay,
2: let's do it again.
0: Thank you very much. Cheers, Cheers. man.
2: Cheers. Okay, mate. Ciao. Bye-bye.
0: What a man, what a life, what a storyteller. And honestly, that's just scratching the surface. We barely even mentioned Cactus. We never spoke about some of the other bands he worked with, like Pink Floyd and Michael Schenker and Ted Nugent. I hope you enjoyed that interview, I really do. Now, if you did, then give it a little share. Tell people about the show. Spread the word about Vintage Rock Pod. Each week, I have a huge guest on telling rock star stories, all worth checking out. This is episode 43. I've had 10 Rock and Roll Hall of Famers on so far. Now it's that time of the program though where we find out my top fives and it's where I give you my favorite five songs from the artist or band of the artist that I've just interviewed on the show. This is my personal choice. I don't claim it to be the definitive list. It's very subjective and hopefully it may be open some doors for anyone who may not be overly familiar with the group in question. Now there's loads to choose from when we talk about Carmine. So here we go. I'm going to take it back to the very beginning and go with my favourite five songs from Vanilla Fudge according to Vintage Rock Pod. Number five is from 1968's Renaissance Record, a cover of a Donovan song. Many have covered it but the vanilla fudge version remains the best. At number five is Season of the Witch. Oh no. And number four is another track from the Renaissance album. It's gripping, it's tense, it's got a real moody feel to it. And number four is Where Is My Mind? Number three is a cover of a Beatles track, slowed and darkened, as you'd expect. I love how it builds towards the end, and the do-they-do-they-do-they bit that repeats over and over. Brilliant. Final song on their debut album, Vanilla Fudge. And number three is Eleanor Rigby. number two for me is a third track from the renaissance album the opener in fact it's raw it's rocking and it's a great example of the hard rock and psychedelic scene of the late 60s number two is the sky cry when i was a boy And at number one, it has to be the big one. It's just so them, so vanilla fudge. They took a hit from another genre and they owned it. Check out the version they did on The Ed Sullivan Show. It's brilliant. My favourite track of theirs, the number one vanilla fudge song according to Vintage Rock Pod is, of course, you keep me hanging on. There you go, my favourite five songs from Vanilla Fudge, pioneers of that hard rock sound that really became a staple for many British groups like Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Uriah Heep and many others. As ever, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree or disagree? Drop me an email vintagerockpod at gmail.com. And please check out Vintage Rock Pod on social media as well Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's where I share short videos and clips and pictures and things like that. And also on YouTube as well, where I post some of the video interviews for you to see too. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on all those platforms and you'll be able to find me. Give me a like, a follow, a subscribe, say hello, all that sort of stuff. It would be great to hear from you also look out for the pantheon podcast network vintage rock pod is now proudly part of the network of music podcasts which has just released a series narrated by the one and only roger daltrey of the who it's called the real me podcast and is part of the who cares teen cancer america program definitely check that one out and look through all the other fantastic series on the network too just look for pantheon podcasts network Well, that's it for this week's show, then. It's been a bumper one. More big-name guests still to come on the following weeks. More rock and roll stories, episodes released each Monday. If this is your first listen, make sure to follow or subscribe to the series so you don't miss any, and go back and listen to some of the fantastic interviews from throughout the series. If you're a big fan of drummers, I've got loads of those. If you like bass players, I've got plenty of them. If you like guitarists, I've got some of them. If you want lead singers, yep, we've got lead singers. I've even got a yodeler. Yes, say no more. Until the next episode then, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan of rock, just tell them, my music is better than yours. Take care.